content may not be appropriate for all listeners. Listener's discretion is advised. Listeners to WTF You Talking About, the podcast where we don't know what we're talking about until you do. I'm Katie. And I'm Decker. And we're here to ask each other, what the fuck are you talking about? So here's how it's going to work. We've got six categories of topics, and the next episode's contents will be determined by the roll of a die. The categories are true crime, paranormal, history and education, science and technology, entertainment, and current events. We'll use an eight-sided die, so if you roll a one, then you're going to roll a six-sided die for those same six categories. Except whatever you talk about has to be local, so Idaho or any state bordering Idaho. And if you roll an eight, then that's a wild, and you get to pick your category. Oh, such such an exciting such moment! I know, I know, power, power, power. <laughs> so, Decker, hold on, let me turn these pages. I think you had a paranormal, right? I did. So, uh, what what the fuck are you talking about? Well. So, I was looking for something, I mean, I'm always looking for something fun. Like, let's be real. I, I, try, not to, I try not to bore our audience. Um, that, so when, when you said that, oh, I'm always looking for something fun, that I'm having flashbacks of when that guy tried to rope me into a threesome at the balcony. Mm, that's, <laughs> We're that, always that looking to fun. enhance our night. Oh, oh shit, I gotta go. I mean, <laughs> we're always looking for fun. You gotta oh. try something. I didn't Sometimes. realize that, like, random people were actually approached at bars to be invited to threesomes. <laughs> Apparently it's a thing that's happening. Until you became a part of one. And then I ran away. <laughs> I was A. Whoa, whoa. I was not part of one. No, no, no. Part of an invitation to join a oh, threesome. Oh, yes. Sorry. To clarify. Yes. Not I didn't realize what was happening until I realized what was happening, and then I ran away. Good. Good. That, and that's my story. <laughs> that's the best time to realize, rather than, like, being in a threesome and then realizing you're in a threesome. I feel like you'd realize that pretty early on. Unless you're just not paying attention and you're oblivious. Or you can't like count? Me. Like, I, I would really hope you would notice you were Where did this extra person Who is come this? from? Uh, well, hello. How long have you been here? Literally the whole time. <laughs> you're in my house. <laughs> Freaking Susan. Okay. <laughs> anyways. Um, yeah, anyways. So back to something at hand. Yes, I do get paranormal. And I realized... That there might be uh, a fun paranormal story that we had missed, and uh, I guess I, let me try to clarify. Not that we missed. I, I feel like say there's there was, been there was a missed opportunity possibly with a paranormal role mm-hmm. because you know we're currently uh, well we're doing two shows right now, right? We have yes. we have Pippin. Uh, uh, the and, time this is released, we'll only be in Legally Blonde. Yeah, we'll only be in Legally Blonde at this point. Well, Yes. Yes, we will. But, um, I was wondering, I was wondering, are there any, like, legal, like, court cases or anything that had to do with the paranormal? Are you gonna talk about the Ghostbuster ruling? I am gonna yes! talk about the Ghostbuster ruling. <laughs> <laughs> you are very excited. You don't seem surprised that I know this. <laughs> no. No. I try... See, here's the thing. I do try to catch you off guard with stories. <laughs> I have. I have gotten. Like, I've got a couple you, yeah. here or there where it's like, like, or it's something that's like you. 
you remember something about it, but you never knew anything about it. Um, I didn't feel like you probably knew about this one. Though. I'm actually gonna have to cross this off of my list of things. Oh shoot! <laughs> no, that, that's fine. <laughs> I was like, I was like, hey, we're doing something with like you know lawyers and stuff. I'm like, there's gotta be something. I'm like, there has to be at least one one court ruling where something happened. So, yeah. So this is the Ghostbuster ruling, aka uh, Stambovsky versus Ackley. So, this is a <clears throat> court case that had deal. Uh, that was in New York, and it was a case um, pretty much surrounding the aspect of does a buyer of a house, do they have to honor an agreement on purchasing said house if they were not notified about the house being haunted? That's that's the gist of mm-hmm. this court ruling. So, um, But yes, it is commonly known as the Ghostbusters ruling. Um, <laughs> which I think is hilarious, <laughs> but, um, so with this one, this, uh, it had two rulings. It had an initial ruling and then it had a, uh, the, uh, so basically in the main trial and then you had a, so there was an appeal and then there was a different ruling at the end of it. So <clears throat> let's kind of jump on in with it. So this had to do with a house that was located in Nyack, New York, and it was owned by Helen Ackley. So it was owned by her and members of her family. Oh, God. I'm sorry. Was that the dot? Yes. Well, I don't remember saying your name. I said Nyack, New York. So unless that's code for something. I think I just had a heart attack. <laughs> oh, my God. Perfect. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it... So it she was in this house with her family members, and all of which reported existence of numerous poltergeists in this house. So, actually, this is going to be a time where I pass this off to you, mm-hmm. Katie. What is the difference between possibly a poltergeist versus make a like a spirit or a haunting? Is there a difference? So, yes, there is. A okay. poltergeist is like a spirit of chaos. So, think back to... I'm going to take it back to Harry Potter. Peeves is a poltergeist. Yeah, Peeves is not a ghost. Okay. He's not a ghost. Correct. He is a poltergeist. He is a spirit of chaos, and he runs okay. around Hogwarts... Fucking shit up. So, um, like, let's say, like, when someone passes, right? Mm-hmm. Would you say, like, they they can be a ghost or a spirit, but could they not, could they become a poltergeist? Or is a poltergeist more a manifestation of like negative energy? That yes, okay. that's I'm pretty sure that it's more the latter. It, yeah, I don't think a poltergeist was ever a person, a person. an entity okay. on the other than just being a poltergeist. Perfect. Okay, so um, yeah, there's supposedly poltergeists in this house. Which, and I'm going to point out, I don't think these actually were poltergeists. I'm going to say they're probably just, eh, meh, ghosts. Just kind of annoyed ghosts. <laughs> because I will talk about the haunting on top, like, like with what this house was um, associated with. Uh, but I do want to go over the court ruling first. Like, because I just, I find it so intriguing. And uh, since I've always been curious about, like, how certain, like, things, like, go between trials. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this is very interesting. So, um... Yeah, so the uh, the house had uh, reported multiple occurrences of hauntings and these poltergeists in the house uh, to Reader's Digest between uh, 1977 and 1989. So, a, a good span of time, over a decade. Right? So, clearly it should be well-known mm-hmm. and well-documented. And it was also part of a, a walking tour. Mm-hmm. I didn't find the actual walking tour, but I guess it was popular. Wait, what year was this? Um... The ruling itself, yeah, I believe it said it was 
Because, yeah, it mentions the New York uh, Appellate Division 1991 Circuit Court. Okay. So, yeah, I, mean, I believe it was 1991. Um, yes, it was 91, because I remember why now. Okay, because there's another year after that that's really important. So, uh, Ackley had worked with a realtor to uh, help get this house showcased to sell it, to move over away to, to God knows where. Probably to Florida, because everyone fucking moves to Florida. <laughs> so, perfect. Uh, but with that, sorry, my left leg was falling asleep, so now I need to make the right one fall asleep. I mean, naturally. Right. You, gotta, you have to this. equalize it. So, uh, with this, she hired a realtor to help sell the house. And it was not publicized in the listing that said house was haunted. Right? And this is where... Uh, Stambowski. I keep wanting to call it like Strombowski. Like I think I want <laughs> the great Stromboli. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, his name was Jeffrey Stambowski, and he entered in the contract to purchase said house. He put down uh, thirty two and a half thousand dollars as a deposit that's to hold a, on to the house. That's a chunk of change, right? Yeah, that's a good chunk of change. Yeah, I mean, as we talked about in a couple past episodes, or was it a couple past episodes, or was it the last episode where I talked about like student debt? And no, shit? it was a couple. Oh, okay. Um, I'm losing track. It's fine. I'm old! <laughs> but, uh, yeah. The house was uh, being sold upon the agreed price of $650,000. I know, right? It's a good chunk of change, like you said. Yeah. So, with that, uh, Stambowski was from New York City, but he was not aware of the folklore of the house mm-hmm. that was in Nyack. I'm, I'm sure I'm saying that's wrong, but I just want to call it Nyack because it's N-Y-A-C-K. So it's going to be called Nyack. Um, this might not have anything to do with it, so you might not know. But does this have anything to do with it being required to be like, oh, someone has died within this house or died in this house within the last X, Y, Z years? Um, or is that a This does thing? not go over that aspect. Okay. Uh, it possibly could be important because I am going to be going over some legalese a little bit mm-hmm. over said case because, you know, it helps with understanding mm-hmm. what the rulings are. But put this down. And then he learns about the haunting and then he filed a an action requesting uh, rescission. And mm-hmm. if you don't know what rescission is, it's basically uh, a way to basically uh, go back on the contract that you were signing in on. So um, uh, we it, actually had to do that. On the first house that we signed on, because then the inspector went through it and yeah. was like, "So this is gonna fall down." Mm-hmm. And this normally has to do with um, stuff because uh, it's a remedy for either mm-hmm. misrepresentation, uh, mistake, uh, duress, or undue influence. Right. So pretty much, it's some sort of factor in which you should have been notified about said thing, and you were not. So it 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 could have affected your buying decision mm-hmm. per se. So, with that being said, we have the 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 defendant, or or sorry, the uh, uh, oh god, what's the right word? I don't want to say prosecutor. I guess it would be. The, I think it would still be like the prosecuting team, right? Because they'd be going after the defendant. Yes. Right. So the prosecuting team basically was filing to have the down payment returned, and to be um, released from said contract to buy said house, because mm-hmm. otherwise. 
um, if they decide to not buy the house, they basically forfeited their deposit. Yeah. And it's, you know, forfeiting 32.5K is not something I'd want uh, to do. No, no, I would not do that quietly. Because you don't have a house and you still have and you money. you still you don't have $32,000. Yeah, you're out to both ways. But with this ruling, they go through and they, they plead their cases from both sides. And initially it was ruled... In favor of the defendant. Now, during these proceedings, the defendant was stopped from basically changing their mind about the house. So if you don't know what a stop or a stopple is, mm-hmm. is it's uh, legalese for not going back on your word. So it's, since they had clearly said that this house was haunted for over a decade, they cannot say this house is no longer haunted. In terms of this legal argument, because that could have a factor in terms of whether or not the uh, prosecutor should have, or the prosecuting team, should have, you know, been notified about purchasing the house, or that it could have affected the price of the Mm -hmm. house. Um, But at the very end, uh, the the prosecutor claims fraud, doesn't really qualify for this sense because they did not necessarily lie or misrepresent they had some history about the house but did not affect the house itself in terms of it it being structurally sound and uh a healthy hospitable shelter a a healthy house yes a healthy house (laughs) it had its checkup it was good uh and so they ruled in favor of the defendant and they're like no you uh you're choosing not to forfeit your thing if you decide not buy the house in which he did and he decided to uh, file an appeal. As the appeal was accepted by the state, and in appeals court, they ended up finding favor. Uh, actually, they kind of found middle ground because what ended up happening is the reason why they could not get the money back originally is due to a rule or a law called caveat emptor, and what that means is it means buyer beware mm-hmm. in Latin. So. If you're choosing to purchase said thing, you need to do all the investigation on yourself before purchasing said object. Otherwise, if it's not what you expected or, you know, maybe you misunderstood, well, too bad, so sad. We're, you know, this is what you bought. You deal with it. Kind of thing. So they, they said basically because of that, like, they should have done thorough research on the house. They should ask these questions. So no, you're not going to be able to go back on this house. In the appeals court, though, they found kind of favor with both sides. The reason why I say that is they did state that for the defendant, caveat emptor does still apply in terms of the house was in good shape. Everything was, uh, you know, it clearly was public. So there was no reason for them to have to disclose information mm-hmm. as it did not jeopardize the integrity of the house. So like with your house, right? It wasn't structurally sound because they cut through the freaking yeah, they cut through every single truss holding up the roof. Yeah. So like you do. You know, and you don't really want to get smushed by your roof, typically. Not, I, no. I don't try that. Um, right. But that would be perfect reason for a rescission. But in this case, here it's even though legally they declared this house as haunted for the purposes of this case, technically there's no way to guarantee that house is said haunted. Mm-hmm. Right? Not with a normal investigation, which is What's important about this? But they found favor with the uh, the prosecuting team by stating that because this is something that would be 
absolutely unknown unless you truly chose to investigate it. If you're not from the area, if you're not superstitious... You really gotta look for that. There'd be no reason for you to ask said questions. And thus, to be held accountable to purchase said house, while it might affect your buying options, right? They did find that the rule of caveat emptor in correlation with equity and, like, basically practical, like, you know, ethical buying purchases and stuff, they found in favor of the plaintiff stating that it had an impact in terms of what the, uh, what Stromvolsky would have been able to research about the house. So because that would not be a normal procedure to investigate if houses are haunted, it's not part of, you know, you don't have your person go in there to investigate the house, make sure it's all structurally mm-hmm. sound, as well as that it's not going to have fucking... Uh, what what did you say his name was? Uh, I want to call him Jeeves, but it's not Jeeves. Peeves. Peeves. <laughs> There's yeah. a butler in there Peeves trying to answer all of your questions. Yeah, but fucking Peeves is ruining it and messing with the butler. Um, so yeah, so they found in favor that he actually did not have to buy the house and could get the money back. But they were not going to file any additional charges against for misrepresentation mm-hmm. and filing, because he was also trying to go for damages as well. Mm-hmm. So... Um, they basically just said, hey, guess what? Contract's basically null and void at this point. You choose one of you still buy a house, so be it. But there's an opportunity for you to get out. And of course, he got out. So, this one's really important because it's actually, supposedly this is a, a case that's taught a lot in law schools. Because it's basically like showcasing the fact that you can have, there are rules in place, but if there can be outliers that would nullify said rules... Right, so in this case here, while caveat emptor should have forced the prosecuting team to have to buy said house or to forfeit their deposit, there was such an outlier and Someone is petitioning for entry. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I tell them no. <laughs> I see. <laughs> I've done that several times. Um, but yeah, so that part is really interesting, to me at least, because it shows that there are, you know... I mean, that's what... Man, he is very <laughs> eager. I have too much stuff in here, though, that'll make noise. Um, but the dissenting uh, opinion, so... Uh, the, the the group that did not quite win out, they said that Caveat Emptor should only be discarded for reasons more substantive than a poltergeist. Since you did state that it would be such a lesser thing to look into, why should that be a reason to also release someone out of said contract? Mm-hmm. Which I totally understand their point. I think it's highly valid as well. Um, so it does seem like in terms of this court, when they appealed, it was much more in terms of like the buyer should be protected rather than the seller. Mm-hmm. But here's the fun news about this. The seller didn't really have a lot of issues selling their house. Because in 1993, they had a paranormal researcher named Bill Merrill and medium Glenn Johnson... Uh, go there to claim that there had been two spirits at that house, and eventually this led to the house being purchased for like over double, almost triple its value. It went from six hundred fifty thousand dollars to one point seven seven million dollars. What? Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. That's disgusting. Right. So even though she could, they didn't sell it to the original person. That publicity for that house and all of its history and stuff got people that were interested in that to purchase said house. 
So now they can go to Florida. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, it sold uh, January eighth of twenty sixteen. Which that is that's some good money right there. Uh but so here's the hauntings though. You ready for the hauntings? Like all the crazy poltergeists in there. Yup. Okay. So here's how this goes. Throw them at me. Right. Um, so one of the people, uh, uh, I think this was, it wasn't the medium. Okay, it was, so Helen, Helen Ackley, so the person that lived there. Helen claimed to see, uh, so one of the spirits was supposed to be Sir George. Um, and he, <laughs> she said that she saw him uh, watching him her paint the living room and asked uh, if they approved of the painting, and he just smiled and nodded. Oh, that's nice of him. Yeah, I know. Not really poltergeisty. No. no, it's just like, yeah, good colors there. Um, the next one is that children in the house would report seeing like gold rings or trinkets show up, mm-hmm. and they'd be like, "Wow, this is cool," and then they disappear after like they looked away from it. Mm-hmm. And at one point, someone even mentions, like, they're like, I don't know why they got this specific, but Cynthia, uh, Cynthia, one of the daughters, uh, claimed that she got, like, a pair of silver sugar tongs. That's specific. I know. I'm like, that's oddly specific. But Cynthia's also one of the children that claim that whenever she'd go to bed all the time, a spirit would always shake her bed. I mean, that's annoying. That is very annoying. Not quite Peeves. Definitely not Jeeves. (laughs) But... (laughs) But then there was one night where uh, she was out for uh, spring break, and apparently she exclaimed that she was going to bed and she would like to sleep in. And then apparently that night, she didn't shake her bed at all. Like, wow, so you're they, not really a poltergeist. Uh, yeah, that's the thing. You're like, pretty friendly. Ghost. If you could so ask nicely, point. you're just more of a you're more of a nuisance. You're like a seven year old that has like unlimited power in a house. You're like home alone except for home forever. <laughs> so. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and then other than that, it's like them seeing ghosts, but nothing crazy. It's so it sounds like really poltergeist here was a misnomer. It really was. Whereas it, they're just like, yep, there's some spirit activity. It's almost here. like extra fluff. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. It's really, really kind of weird. I, I thought it was surprising how much it sold for. I definitely think the... That's obscene. It's stupid. It's stupid that that publicity gave them all that, like, cash. But, you know, I mean, good for them. Good for them. Um, oh, oh, sorry, I forgot to mention. So here's a couple other things. So after it didn't go her way for uh, everything that, like, when she was trying to sell the house and whatnot, she claimed several things. She claimed that uh, the, so the people that bought the house when they went there, there was no more hauntings, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. No, they were like, oh, there's nothing here, so that's fun. So there's no hauntings in the house after they left. People say it's because of several reasons. Either the ghosts don't like them enough to bother them, yeah. <laughs> which I'm like confused by that statement. Uh, another one is that Helen was so upset by the ruling that she said she was going to take the ghosts with her. <laughs> I don't think that's a thing you could... I, no. Apparently. All right, guys, we're leaving. That, or or the last one is they were the ghosts were so annoyed at the people that showed up at the house that they had thought about moving on. 
God, these new people are the worst. I'm leaving. <laughs> so, but yeah, that is uh, Stambolski versus Ackley. Otherwise known as the Ghostbusters boy. So, yeah, pretty uh, pretty interesting. Yeah. So, not sure how many more stories there are like this out there. I'm doubtful um, there's a lot. Somewhere, there is one, and now I can't remember if I've talked about it or oh. not. Oh, jeez. Because I don't know what I've talked Please about my spine. here versus what I've talked about just, like, in my life. Right. Um, there's one where they actually allowed testimony of a spirit. Yes! Okay, I will not talk about that. I will leave okay. that one for you. I've heard of that one, <laughs> yeah. and I don't want to research it. I want to definitely leave that one for you. Okay. Because <laughs> I know that, like, you'll find some good stuff on that, but... <sighs> Jesus Christ. Jeez, I'm so old. Old man. I guess. Why am I still popping? <laughs> well, you've reached the age. Yeah, my I'm about to pass. I'm about to move on. I'm so annoyed with my body. <laughs> so. So when you were younger, you were popping different things. <laughs> Phrasing. I said what I said. Okay. Well. <laughs> that was 100% a boner joke. <laughs> okay. Perfect. Well, on that note, now that we're on the up and up. Ah. <laughs> 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 Katie. Yes. What the fuck are you talking about? Well, you may have noticed that this week I have my voice back. It's good. It's good. It's good. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what I... What? Cool. But yeah, so now, now your voice is back. Yes, my voice is back. And this is something that I wanted to cover for a while based on a conversation that I had with some friends of ours a while ago. Uh-huh. Uh, Shout out to Sarah and Jillian. Oh, the, yay! The three of us have a a message going where we just send each other anti-vax memes. Yeah, some more of those. Um, cause I'm sure you all remember that. I'm getting, no, I'm getting all ready. I'm I'm that's I'm real passionate about that. Yeah, that Every, seems fair. Everyone should get their vaccines, and everyone uh, should. They they feel likewise. Um, and this was something that we had been discussing. So we're going to talk about diphtheria. Okay. You seem perplexed. I, I mean, you, you've caught me. There's a lot of diseases in, in this podcast already. We've talked about chlamydia. We've talked about... Uh, we haven't really talked about chlamydia. Well, I mean, it had to do with, like, uh, prostitution, which... But the Civil rising. War. Right. Um, and then we had the measles. I'll be honest. For a while, I thought, is this going to be the day I talk about syphilis? It's not. It's not. Nope. Not I decided yet. that that was going to be a different time. <sighs> We're not lucky enough. <laughs> to get syphilis on this show. But syphilis but is coming. It's coming. Don't, yeah. you, worry. don't you worry. <laughs> okay, but yeah, so diphtheria. I don't know much about diphtheria. I just know that it's kind of like, uh, I just think of the Oregon Trail. <laughs> is what happens when I think about diphtheria. Because I think I confuse it with dysentery. Dysentery, yes. They are very different. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so, diphtheria is an infection caused by bacterium corinibacterium. Okay. Diphtheriae. Sorry, that was... Two separate words, but there should not have been that long of a pause between them. Anyways, long bacterium name. Okay. It causes a thick covering in the back of the throat, and it can lead to difficulty breathing, heart failure, paralysis, and death. Death. So, so, so I just, it, it's like a, it's like having a frog in your throat that just chokes you out? Sort of. Okay. Uh, so it spreads from person to person via good old respiratory droplets. God damn it, leprosy. <laughs> Um, it 
rarely spreads also from touching open sores because there is a type of like a secondary a secondary diphtheria infection that uh-huh. infects the skin. Okay. Um, so open sores or clothes that have touched open sores of an infected person, mm. also by coming in contact with an object that has the bacteria on it. Gotcha. How long does it live outside of? So that's. I I don't think I found anything specifically. Okay, but apparently it does have at least a good chance to live yeah. outside. The fact that it mentions but objects. People that are un that people with untreated diphtheria can infect non-immune people for up to six weeks, even if they aren't showing any symptoms. Whoa. That's a good amount of time. So that's crazy. Yeah. And yeah at least you know faster than leprosy, though, if you I, were to yes. get it. Um, one of the things that... So when I was reading about how it says that it, like, it can live on an object, uh-huh. it made me think of the Velveteen Rabbit. And I was like, cool. No, I can't talk about the Velveteen Rabbit because that's Scarlet Fever. So that's a story for another day. Have you? Are you familiar? Why do with all these diseases have such interesting names? Are you familiar with the Velveteen Rabbit? No. Oh my God! It is the saddest children's book ever. Okay, now that sounds familiar. I, I will read it to you. We will have sad bedtime story. I mean, there's a lot of children's <laughs> books with rabbits in it, though. <laughs> but that'll have to wait till we talk about Scarlet Fever. Like Goodnight Moon. That has a lot less Scarlet Fever in it. It sure does, <laughs> but it has rabbits. <laughs> or are they bunnies? Uh, I, that's a good question. Well. Please let us know. Is it rabbits or bunnies? <laughs> Anyways, uh, also I was thinking, shouldn't, shouldn't there be like a, shouldn't like the the song for like who or something like that, be like you know the World Health Organization, mm-hmm. shouldn't it be like don't stand so, don't stand so, <laughs> don't stand so close to me because all these diseases. I didn't know they had a theme song. You mentioned respiratory droplets. Mm-hmm. I think this is like the third one you've mentioned that has respiratory yeah. droplets. It's a it's a common common route as well as you know anal oral also a common droplets route. they're everywhere yep okay but velveteen rabbit will have to wait for scarlet fever which i will apparently not be talking about at some point perfect so the bacteria gets into and attaches to the lining of the respiratory system okay so this includes all of the parts that you need to breathe and yes. when this happens the bacteria produces a poison what um aka toxin which is, I'm going to refer to toxin a lot. Okay. So just keep that in your head. Uh, and this can cause weakness, sore throat, fever, and swollen glands in the neck. Mm. The toxin destroys healthy tissues in the respiratory system. And within two to three days, the dead tissue forms a thick gray coating that builds up in the throat and nose. Oh. Ew. It's gray? Yeah. So it's like... It's, it, it's dead tissue. It's dead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh. And this is called the, or it's called a pseudomembrane, and it can cover tissue in the nose, tonsils, voice box, and throat, making it hard to breathe and swallow. <laughs> like, who called it a voice box? <laughs> Do you have diphtheria? Okay. Is that what we're no, talking? I'm just allergic <laughs> to all of the trees. <laughs> I know, I've been so sneezy. I've been in so sneezy, like, this entire week. So I've got whatever junk is, like, left over from when I was sick, and mm-hmm. then all of the trees. All of them. Yeah, they all suck. The toxin can also get into the bloodstream, and it can cause heart, nerve, and kidney damage. So that's cool. Man, it's just causing a lot. Complications can include blocking the airways, which, that's not great. Yeah. Damage to the heart muscle, which is also called myocarditis. Myocarditis. Okay. Nerve damage, or polyneuropathy. 
loss of the ability to move, or paralysis. <laughs> Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> nice for you. <laughs> Lung infection, or respiratory failure or pneumonia. Okay. Death. That's a pretty severe complication. No, yeah, that's... I mean, it's both simple and complicated. Even with treatment, one out of ten diphtheria patients die. Without, one out of three? One out of ten. Oh. Without treatment, then you half of diphtheria patients will die from the disease. Damn. Getting treatment quickly is super, super important. So to identify diphtheria, doctors can do a throat swab or sample from a skin lesion, if that happens to be a thing that's going on there, and they test it for the bacteria. Uh-huh. Uh, treatment for diphtheria should be started right away if diphtheria is suspected. You can't wait for laboratory results to confirm it. You just have to go for so it. So you have to be like, mm, this could be the diphtheria. Start treatment immediately. And then maybe do lab results while you wait. Just to... Yeah. Um, okay. And that's another thing. Diphtheria is extremely contagious. Yeah, it sounds like it's both extremely contagious and fairly uh, lethal. Yeah, it's not great. I mean, if one, of the, if one out of two people die without treatment and one out of ten die with treatment, that's yeah significant. Uh, so, before treatment was available in the U.S., up to half of people who got diphtheria died. and that, So that was before treatment. Uh-huh. Uh, people with diphtheria are usually no longer contagious 48 hours after they begin antibiotics. And you need to finish the full course of antibiotics, which, I mean, they tell you every time you take them. Mm-hmm. Um, which, always finish your full course yeah, of antibiotics. Don't just... We don't need none of these super bacterium running around. Uh-huh. Um, and so after you finish the full course, you have to go back and be tested to make sure that the bacteria is... Or resistant is bacteria. ...is actually gone yeah. from your body. Hang on just a minute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's funny. For a half second there, I thought about tickling your toes. I realized I'd get kicked in the face. You would. That was a smart decision <laughs> to not do that. So preventing diphtheria is super easy because there is a very effective vaccine. Oh, whoa! There's a vaccine? And this is a, it's a bacterial toxoid, which means that there is the toxin, There, so the vaccine, it's the, the toxin with the toxicity having been inactivated. Okay. So there... So it, it, it should not hurt you. Correct. what you're telling me. Correct. That's good. I don't like vaccines that hurt me. Of which there are none. I mean, yes. Unless you're allergic. It, yes. Then they are. Correct. So there are four different vaccines. Mm-hmm. Young children will either get the DTaP or the DT. I think I had the DTaP. That one sounds very familiar. Uh, yeah, so that's for kids seven and under. Okay. And then preteens will get uh, TDAP or TD. TDAP also sounds very familiar. I mean, you should have that one. And then adults will get... TD or TDAP. Which is also what the teenagers got, right? Yes. Okay, cool. So basically... <laughs> Just confirming. DTAP and DT are specifically for kids 7 and under. So wait, DTAP and D... Uh, D was it DTAP and TDAP? Did I get that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, that's where you know they just kind of flip the letters around. So each vaccine prevents diphtheria and tetanus. Oh, yes, because I remember having to get that for tetanus. Yes. However, DTAP and TDAP also prevent pertussis, which is whooping cough. Also one you don't want. Correct. Of which there is still an outbreak going on right now, because there doesn't have to be. Yes. 
and it it's ridiculous that whooping cough is still going around here. Um, when I started my job at St. Luke's, it's they you know part of your new employee thing is you do a physical and they like update all your vaccines and everything. And so I had a Tdap recently. Uh huh. I was I was just checking my immunization records to make sure that I had had that, and mm. I have. Um, That's good. Because it's one of those where it needs to have a booster every so often. Gotcha. So the the current childhood schedule recommends a booster or includes the current childhood schedule includes five doses of DTaP. Mm-hmm. The adolescent schedule recommends a booster dose of Tdap at eleven or twelve. And teens that don't receive that booster should get it the next time that they go to the doctor. So it's not like, oh, you've missed it. Too late. Like, no, you can just, just go get it. Okay. Adults should get a dose of TD every 10 years. And one of those can be replaced with a dose of TDAP to help protect against pertussis. Uh, so diphtheria was a major cause of childhood death. In the U.S. in 1921, uh, 206,000 cases of diphtheria resulted in 15,520 deaths. And this dropped rapidly in the U.S. when people started vaccinating. Shocking, right? I can't believe it. Uh, Studies estimate that the diphtheria toxoid vaccine protects 95 out of 100 people. So that's pretty damn good. Yeah. Most people do not experience any serious side effects. Um... And side effects include redness, swelling, soreness at the injection site, fever, loss of appetite, vomiting, mm-hmm. fussiness, feeling tired, headache, etc. Which, I mean, if you've ever had a tetanus shot, yeah, that about sums it up, and you feel crummy for a little while, and then you're fine. Um, although my arm was sore for a couple of days, but you know what? Yeah, the tetanus one my arm was sore for a couple of days. Sure a lot better than having tetanus, yeah. or diphtheria, yeah. or pertussis. Yeah. I'm the yeah guy. <laughs> you're a yeah man. Was your, is your knee popping too? Yep. Nice. That's not the one I've had surgery on. Way to age. That's my bad knee now. (sighs) My good knee is the one that they went in and removed things from. So the winter of 1924 to 1925, what appeared to be tonsillitis cases were on the rise in Nome, Alaska. Mm -hmm. Dr. Curtis Welsh was the only doctor in town, and he was... Uh, Nome is a town of less than 2,000 people. And he was supported by four nurses at a 25-bed hospital, and that was Maynard Columbia. Or Maynard Columbus Hospital. No way. Are you bringing up Balto right now? I sure fucking am. Fuck. Yep, we are... Uh, You mentioned something about Balto earlier. We are going right into the the serum run of 1925. Oh, my God. Also known as the Great Race of Mercy. God. But I'm going to call it the serum run. No, that's what the Iditarod came up. Yes, but that actually is not related. Okay. As I learned. Because I thought that it was. Ah. It's not. Okay. Did I tell you about how I, I guessed correctly on I did a rod when I was like in elementary school? And the... John said something about that too. And he's like, didn't you ever do stuff like that? And I was like, no, I sure yeah, didn't. No, like, I, didn't... I guessed the exact team and dogs. I don't and remember I us doing a, anything about the I did a rod. I got a like super cool thermos that... I've lost. <laughs> I don't think we covered the I did a rod when I was in school. Like, I just, I don't think we did. We, we had a tracker up on our wall, and we'd actually take all the racers, and we'd put them in certain spots so we could see. And mine was tailing behind for the most part, and at the very end, it was like, whoop. Like, did you go to yeah. elementary school in Boise? Yeah. Wait, where? 
Uh, Valley View. Okay. And I mean, well, Frontier, to, like for like the first two years. So kindergarten. And John went to Adams. I guess I just didn't reach Lowell. It's, I don't know. That makes sense. I don't know, man. So Welsh had placed an order for more diphtheria antitoxin after discovering that the hospital's entire supply was expired. Uh, so he placed it like a while ago. However, the shipment did not arrive before the port closed for the winter and he wouldn't be able to order any more until the port opened again in the spring. So that's not like super great. No, that means the town's screwed. So it's December foolish. 1924, several days after the port closes, Dr. Welsh starts seeing an increase in what he thought was tonsillitis. Uh, initially, he had dismissed the idea that it was diphtheria because diphtheria is super infectious. So you would think that, oh, these kids are coming in with tonsillitis. Their family members would also be showing symptoms. Like, this would be right. more widespread. Be more prevalent. Um, and that just that wasn't what he was seeing. And at first, there were just a few isolated cases. But over the next few weeks, the numbers of cases grew and four children died. So he was like, oh, this is a problem. Uh, and he was not able to autopsy these children, but after this happened, he was starting to get concerned that it was possibly di a, a diphtheria outbreak. Yeah. So this January 1925, Dr. Welsh officially diagnosed the first case of diphtheria in a three-year-old boy uh, who unfortunately died two weeks after first becoming sick. The next day... A seven-year-old girl pre presented with the telltale signs of diphtheria. Dr. Welsh tried to see if any of the e expired antitoxin would have any effect, but she died within a couple of hours and they weren't able to find anything out. Oh, so Dr. Welsh realizes that shit is going to hit the fan. An epidemic is imminent. So yeah. he calls the mayor and they have an emergency town council meeting. And the council immediately implements a quarantine. So the next day which is January 22nd, uh -huh. 1925, Welsh sent radio telegrams to all other major towns in Alaska, alerting them to the health risk, as well as the U.S. Public Health Service, U.S. Public Health Service, asking for assistance. Uh, despite the quarantine, there were more than 20 confirmed cases and 50 at risk by the end of January. And without the antitoxin, it was expected that in the surrounding regions, uh, the population of about 10,000-ish, people, mm -hmm. would have a mortality rate of 100%. Oh, everyone dies. So, I mean, in Alaska, you have all of these native peoples that don't have resistances to these diseases that people have brought to them. Oh, yes. So that's I not I forgot great. what we did. Yes. Also, this area had been hit by the Spanish flu in 1918 and 1919, and that wiped out 50% of the population of Nome and 8% of the population of Alaska. Which, holy shit, that's a lot. That's a good chunk. It's also worth noting that due to its location, Nome is only accessible by the Iditarod Trail in the winter. So mail and supplies predominant, predominantly come by dog sled. Mm -hmm. That is the only possible way to get to Nome, is using the Iditarod Trail. Jeez. And thus... Yes? So you can continue. Oh, okay. <laughs> so January 24th. The Board of Health Superintendent Mark Summers of the Hammond Consolidated... Let's talk about that name there for a hot second. Mark Summers in Alaska. In Alaska. <laughs> Ugh, foolish. Anyways, continue. So he's at the, the Hammond Consolidated Goldfields. He proposes at a meeting, why don't we have a dog sled relay? 
we'll use two fast teams to bring the the units that the U.S. Public Health Service gives them, well, to get those to Nome. Um, and so this relay would start in Ninana, as well as a team from Nome, and so they would both meet in Nalato. Okay. The trip from Nalato to Nome regularly takes about 30 days. Wow, that's a... Although the record was nine days, which is still wow. too slow. Because Nine under days. the brutal conditions of the trail, Dr. Welsh estimated that the serum would last six days before it was Not ruined. Yeah. Uh, so, so that means that you'd have to probably go, like, what, non-stop? Yes. Which, Literally, so it had to happen. Oh, don't worry. We will, we will get there. I have, I got 13 and a half pages of notes, buddy. Oh, good. <laughs> for you. <laughs> right, so... Lenhard Sapala was in the employ of Mark Summers at uh-huh. the, the Goldfields. Yes. And he was chosen for the 630-mile round trip from Nome to Nalato and back. He had previously made the run in a record-breaking break- four days, which, holy shit, that is a lot. That is, I mean, that is not a lot for a lot of miles. Uh, he had also won the All-Alaska Sweepstakes three times, and was something of a legend for his athletic ability and the his rapport with his Siberian Huskies. Mayor Maynard, however, proposed flying the antitoxin in. However, the longest reliable flight was only 260 miles, and the conditions required so much winter clothing that the aircraft was nearly unflyable, and several crash landings had to be made. So that's not great. No. Also... The only aircrafts operating in Alaska were three vintage Standard J biplanes. Hmm. All of which had been dismantled for the winter for repairs. Fair. So. Not only are they dismantled, but they're very unreliable in cold weather because they A, have open cockpits, and B, have water-cooled engines. It's I, fucking cold. I mean, you tell <laughs> Yeah, I think that might be a problem. On top of this, both pilots, yes, I said both, like one, two, were in the lower 48 states, not in Alaska. So their only option would be to have, to use an inexperienced pilot, which in these conditions is probably not a great idea. No, it sure isn't. And this probably could have been quicker than dog sled. However, they deemed the option too reliable or too unreliable. (laughs) This is too reliable. We can't do it. They, it's too unreliable. We need there to be some chance here. They're like, this is too unreliable, and the dog sled relay was unanimously approved. Uh, Sapala was notified, and he immediately began preparations. The U.S. Public Health Service was able to locate 1.1 million units of serum in West Coast hospitals. Okay. They planned to ship all of these to Seattle, Washington, where they would be shipped north on the next boat, which would be which which was the Alameda. Uh, that would not arrive in Seattle, however, until January 31st. Mm-hmm. And then it would take another six to seven days to arrive in Seward. So just to get to Alaska. Mm-hmm. On January... Whoa. On January 300,000. Nope. Nice. Well into the future. We're still trying to do this. <laughs> <laughs> no one's dead yet. So either the 26th or the 27th. Okay. Uh, 300,000 
forgotten units of serum were found in Anchorage Railroad Hospital. 300,000? How do you how do you misplace 300,000? I see that I don't know. That is a lot because you're thinking like like a serum. Yeah. Well, but, but I mean also like how do you just suddenly like oh all of our stuff is expired. So I imagine it was probably something like that where they maybe I don't know how they were doing inventory. Maybe they just didn't realize they had it, and then they're like, oh, shit, look, we have this. They need this. So they find this, and the chief of surgery, John Beeson, heard of the need, and so he immediately wrapped the supplies in glass vials, padded quilts, uh, and a metallic cylinder, so it weighed a little over 20 pounds. And the package was given to train conductor Frank Knight, and it arrived in Nanana, or arrived in Nanana on January 27th. Mm-hmm. Uh, the amount of serum was... Not enough to defeat the epidemic, but it would be enough to kind of hold it at bay until our larger shipment could arrive. Mm-hmm. And a little bit later, I'll tell you a little bit, like, because I know 300,000 sounds like a lot. And it does. 300,000 is, um, we have 327,000 people in our mm-hmm. However, I so will, that's almost I'll matter. give you some numbers a little bit later that will kind of put it into perspective of how much you need to treat. Mm. So temperatures were... At a... So let me rephrase. I said 327,000 people in Idaho. I mean 327,000 people in Boise. Yeah, sorry. Yes. That number was way off. I'll be honest. That didn't even register in my brain. That's okay. As something... I just realized I, I needed to clarify because I knew someone was going to definitely correct me on that. Someone's going to at you. <laughs> no! <laughs> Not at. Temperatures were at a 20-year low due to a high-pressure system from the Arctic. And temperatures in Fairbanks were running about negative 50 Fahrenheit. Ooh. A second system was also burying the panhandle um, with 25 mile per hour winds and 10 foot snowdrifts. Travel by sea was super dangerous, and most land transportation forms were shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also limited daylight for flying because of the polar night. So, mm-hmm. that's great. So the first batch of serum was on its way to Ninana, Governor Bone gave the final authorization for the dog relay. So he ordered the U.S. Post Office inspector because that's... That was who... the So the post office... Most of the, like, the elite, I don't know, I guess the best sled teams in Alaska were the mail because that's how it was getting delivered. Mm-hmm. So they tell the post inspector, Edward Wetzler to arrange a relay with the best drivers and dogs across the interior. And they'll travel day and night until the package was handed off to Sapala in Nolato. The mail route from Nanana to Nome is 674 miles. God! 674 miles? Yes. Can, so, can you, do you have, like, a... Can you put me in, like, perspective, like, the distance that would be? Like, relative, like, to here? Or, like... From like, is that like the width of Idaho? Um, like what? From here to Moscow is three hundred miles. Okay. So that's, that's more than to Moscow and back. Mm. That's about. What's that? Is that about six hours worth of time travel? Mm-hmm. Right, and that's in a car. Yeah. Going seventy-five. Yeah, you literally have to go nonstop with dogs. Yes. Because I, I don't think, what, they can't go faster than, like, what, 30? They're probably going, like, what, like, what? Like, uh, how fucking fast does a dog so, run? It's like, 
Like, so, what, 24? I don't freaking know. Sapala's so, dogs were going real fucking fast, and they were going eight miles an hour. See. So, yeah. So, eight miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Let's do you have the math? Do you have the math? Do you actually have the math for, like, the, how long fuck, that would take? Fuck no. Okay, eight miles per hour. We're gonna do math time with Decker. Okay, eight miles per hour, right? And you said how, what, 600 and what? 674 miles. And that's assuming that they were all going as fast. Which they were not. Um, because okay. I, I do have the distance that each team went. So that would be 84 hours non-stop. Mm-hmm. Non-stop. Except I think it actually took 120... Let's see. It took 127 hours and 30 minutes. Five and a half days. Solid. Most of which was done in the dark. So that means that... Due to, you know, conditions, it mm-hmm. probably added to. God, that's a shit. Yeah. So, so now we're gonna start going through the relay. Right. Well, like, 127 hours is five and a half days. Yeah. Five and a half days, and you said the vials were bad after nine. He, he estimated that they'd be good for about six days due to the conditions. So literally. The, the, that that would get there in just enough time for them to possibly be put into people. Well, then it would have to thaw. Right. But yes. But yes. Basically, you had a day buffer. Time is of the essence, is what yes. the thing is. The Alright, so we're going to get into the relay and all uh-huh. of the, the mushers and teams and blah, blah, blah. The first musher in the relay was Wild Bill Shannon. Nice. Good uh, name. You always need a good name. Yep. He was handed the 20-pound package at the train station in Nanana, January 27th at 9 p.m. The temp was negative 50 Fahrenheit. Uh, despite this, he left immediately with a team of... So he his team was led by his dog, Blackie, who was five years old and was, I think, decently experienced. However, the rest of the team was inexperienced. The temp began to drop, and the team was forced to use the ice on the river as the trail had been destroyed by horses. So they weren't running on the trail, they were running on the frozen river. I'm sorry, you're saying horses are out there at negative 50 degrees Fahrenheit? I mean, probably not now. But they had destroyed the trail. I'm a horsicle! (laughs) So the sled was running on the frozen river. Gotcha. Which, burr. Over the river and through (laughs) the woods. Shannon jogged alongside the shed. Shed? Sled. Random shed just popped. Yep. Oh. Right. Shannon jogged alongside. Me. He ran alongside to keep warm. Good. The sled. However, he still developed hypothermia. So they. He. Shannon did? Yes. He arrived at Minto at 3 a.m. with parts of his face black from frostbite. The temperature was negative 62. Uh, he warmed the serum by the fire and rested for four hours before leaving. He left three of his dogs there and continued with the remaining eight that he had. Unfortunately, all three of those dogs died shortly after he returned for them. Oh. And we, it's not confirmed, but I think another one of his dogs may have also died. So Shannon and his team arrived in... Tolerano? At 11 a.m., and they were in bad shape. So they handed the package over to Edgar Calland, 
and he had arrived in Minto the night before and then was sent 70 miles back to Torlerano, uh, so the day before the relay. So the, the serum is warmed in the roadhouse a little bit, and that's all along the, the trail. There's roadhouses. So why do they keep warming it? Is that, because, like, is that to keep it from damaging the disease like, I, I too think much so, yeah. to where, like, it'd be not viable as mm-hmm. well? Okay. So they warm it at the roadhouse a little bit, um, and Collins departs for, or Callens departs for Manly Hot Springs Roadhouse. He arrives there at 4 p.m., and the owner of the roadhouse reported that he had to pour hot water on Callens' hands to get them off of the sled's handlebars. Well, you shouldn't do hot water. I, I mean, I know that's not the problem here right now. I, uh, so next it's handed off to Dan Green, who takes the serum from Manly Hot Springs to Fish Lake and gives it to Johnny Folger, who took it from Fish Lake to, to Tanana through the remainder of the day and night. January 29th, the serum is handed along by six different drivers and their teams totaling 170 miles from Tanana to Galena. At this point, two new cases have been diagnosed. The quarantine has been obeyed, but due to the lack of diagnostic tools and the extreme contagiousness of the strain, it's useless. Like, the quarantine is not helping. It's not helping because of, like, it's just... Mm-hmm. Uh, more serum has been discovered in Juno, estimated to be 125,000 units, which is enough for four to six patients. I'm sorry, what was that again? How many units? 125,000. 125,000. For four to six patients. Um, And at this point, the crisis has made national headlines. Of course. So January 30th, George Nolner brings the serum to Bishop Mountain, arriving at 3 a.m. and handing it off to Charlie Evans. Evans heads out into the patch, or heads out into a patch of ice fog, which I didn't realize ice fog was a thing. But this is created because, so the nearby... It's like the night shining that I showed you. I wonder, like, you remember that? Um, It was when I talked about... Oh, yes, where it looked like daylight. Yes. Yes. Actually, I don't remember what episode that was from, though. Was that when I talked about energy, or...? Uh, I, don't think, I didn't think it was the energy. I don't think so, but I don't... That's all right. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out later. We'll hear about it. Okay. So the ice fog is caused by, or that particular patch of ice fog was caused by the nearby Koyukuk River. The water broke through the ice. So Evans, his, uh, I think his two lead dogs, they were mixed breeds. Um, and he had forgotten. So I guess I didn't realize this. Um, and I don't know if this is specific to mixed breed dogs because it doesn't sound like this was an issue with the other ones that were using different kinds of dogs, like Alaskan uh-huh. Malamutes or Siberian Huskies, etc. Yeah. Um, Malamutes, <laughs> they're like bigger Huskies. The, the groin region, I guess, is vulnerable to the cold. Oops. And he... Uh, so I've heard. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> Are you a mixed breed? <laughs> Your groin region vulnerable to the cold? I'm a mutt. <laughs> uh, where are they? Right. Evans had not remembered to cover the vulnerable areas of his mixed breed leaders on his team, mm-hmm. and eventually he sees them collapse from frostbite. So he ends up leading the team himself to Nolato. What do you mean he leads the team? 
he gets in front of the dogs and leads the team. Damn. So, so he, he basically walks them. Yeah, he, he or runs. Or he gets on all fours. Uh, no. No, he runs the dogs. So he gets into Nalato at 10 a.m., and by then, both of his lead dogs are dead. Uh, the next driver, Tommy Patsy, departs within 30 minutes of Evans arriving. Meanwhile, another death has been reported. The campaign to fly the serum is renewed, uh, but again rejected by experienced bush pilots, the Navy, and also Governor Bone. So it's shut down again. Instead, they decide to step up the speed of the relay, and they authorize more drivers to the latter portion of the relay. Uh, and that's, So that's Nalato to Nome. And this kind of makes things get a little weird. Um, so Sapala was still scheduled to cover the most dangerous leg. He was still scheduled to cover the most dangerous leg of the route, which was the short, mm-hmm. shortcut across the Northern Sound. Mm-hmm. So across the frozen water. However, the telephone and telegraph systems bypassed the small villages that he was going through, so he had no way to find out that they were speeding up this process. Mm -hmm. So their plan was, okay, we'll have him stop in Shaktalik. However, this relied on a driver catching him from the north on the trail and just hoping that they met up. I don't like how this is sounding. Because <laughs> hoping in the Alaskan wilderness is... The problem with this is that since Sapala doesn't know that they've sped this up, mm-hmm. he is hauling ass to get to Shaktalik. But that means that, that the serum's going to get there before he will because he doesn't know that this thing has been sped up and he's going as fast as he can. So he doesn't have any way to know that he needs to wait in Shaktalik. Um, and so the, the the plan relies on drivers catching him from the north, letting him know that they have arranged for additional drivers for the last leg, which includes Sapala's colleague, Gunnar Kazan. Mm. Which, if that name sounds familiar, you'll know why in a minute. So January 31st, Miles... Ganam Gan. Ganam Gran? I don't know. <laughs> Leaves <laughs> Unilectly at 5.30 a.m. Uh, but he sees that there's a storm brewing, so he decides against taking a dangerous shortcut across the ice of the sound and instead goes through whiteout conditions with a wind chill of negative 70. That's fucking off. Oh, it gets better. Oh. Like, I can't even, I can't even imagine, like, I know what negative, like, 15, no, like, negative 17 I asked, here in Idaho. I asked John about this, uh, and he said that he's been in a blast freezer before, which is at negative 60, and no one is allowed to be in there for more than five minutes, because it is dangerous. Makes sense. hmm Did he ever state how cold the blast freezer was? Negative 60. Like, I mean, like, did he ever compare it to anything? No. He okay. did not. He just, like, he just said it was very cold. Don't be there. It was real cold. <laughs> So, Miles <laughs> reaches cool. Shaktalu at 3 p.m. Sapala was not there yet, because he doesn't know this has been sped up, but he is still hauling ass. However, Henry Ivanov was waiting there just in case 
Sapalo wasn't there yet. So Ivanov takes it from Miles. Leonard Sapala has has traveled 91 miles from Nome between January 21st, no, January 27th and January 31st (laughs) into the oncoming storm. So he took the shortcut across the sound because time was tight. He was hurrying. And so he heads towards Shaktaloo in gale force winds with a wind chill of negative 85. We're getting there. Yep. So Henry Ivanov's Reverse team... summer, here we come. <laughs> Henry Ivanov's team runs into a reindeer and they get tangled up just outside of Shaktaloo. Fucking reindeer just I don't chilling know. out? Uh, that was bad phrasing. But... Uh, yep, it was chilling out, all right. <laughs> now, Sapala still believes that he has, you know, more than 100 miles to go. So he is racing to get off the sound before the storm hits, and he's passing, you're getting ready to pass Ivanov's team when Ivanov shouts, the serum, the serum, I have it here. So they stop and they make the transfer. So you're lucky. Mm-hmm. So the 1995 movie- Before you move any further. Okay. Before you move any further. Okay. In my head, in my head, you're like, <laughs> I had to go back to the reindeer, because my, as soon as you said the reindeer, my brain's like, Grandpa got right over <laughs> Or Grandma got ran over by a reindeer. <laughs> I was thinking, like, you know, like, the opposite. The reindeer got ran over by a snow dog. I mean, several of them. It was a whole team. Yeah, that's a lot. Do you think it was just, like, 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 a, like an over kind of thing? Or did they just get taken on? And it was like, oh, jeez. You know, I don't know. Was the reindeer just... I mean, they at least had to stop to sort themselves out. Yeah. So the 1995 movie Balto is loosely based on the true story of Balto. Balto is the dog that led the final leg of the serum run. Uh, Balto was the lead dog on Gunnar Kaysen's team. Uh-huh. And he arrived... No, that's not how I wrote that. He, <laughs> he carried the serum from Bluff to Nome, which was the last 53 miles of the run. Mm. Uh, there's a statue of Balto in Central Park in New York City. However, I will posit that the real hero of the serum run is Lenhard Sapala and his lead dog, Togo. Uh, it's worth noting that Balto was also one of Sapala's dogs. Uh, mm. he, so he, I think he raised it. Um, and unlike Balto, uh, Togo was not neutered. So I think Balto was neutered when he was like six months old or something. Mm. Uh, well, I hear having that extra testosterone really helps. Well, it, it be, So I hear. This will be important for much later. Just the, the later in Togo's life. Moral story is don't neuter. You're... That is not correct. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Bob Barker is going to bust in here and kick your ass. <laughs> no! <laughs> you spay and neuter your pets. Sapala and Togo have just run 170 miles from Nome to Shadalik. Shadalik. So they, they get there, they make the transfer with Ivanov. Okay. And they're hearing of the worsening epidemic, so Sapala says... Well, fuck it. We're going. So he immediately turns around, goes off directly into the storm. So he's... Wow. Yeah, goes directly into the storm on the exposed ice, or the exposed open ice of the sound. The wind chill is estimated negative 85 with gale force winds. Togo leads the team in a straight line through the dark, and they arrive at the roadhouse in Isaac's Point on the other side of the sound at 8 p.m. So they were going about... Eight miles an hour. They traveled 84 miles in one day. 
The team rested and they departed at 2 a.m. into the full power of the storm. The wind speed now had picked up to 65 miles an hour. Uh, Sapala had the team travel back down onto the packed ice of the sound, which so they were following the shoreline, which is risky because the ice is starting to break up. So they returned to the shore and cross Little McKinley Mountain, and that's like they climb up an elevation of 5,000 5, feet. And they descend to the next roadhouse at Golovin. So then Sapala passes Sapala passes the serum to Charlie Olson at 3 a.m. Now the number of cases in Nome is 28, and the antitoxin in route is only enough for 30 people. So time is running you got out. A two- person buffer. <laughs> That's... Yeah. So the winds have now reached 80 miles per hour. Dr. Welsh orders a stop and decides that a delay in the arrival of the serum is better than losing the serum altogether. So he sends a message to Solomon and Port Safety. Uh, he's able to get a message there before the lines go dead. I have turned too many pages. Olsen is blown off the trail and suffers severe frostbite in his hands while putting blankets on his dogs. Uh, the wind chill, chill, the wind chill <laughs> is <laughs> negative 70. He arrived at Bluff on February 1st at 7 p.m. in poor shape. Gunnar Kaysen waited until 10 p.m. for the storm to break. However, it was just getting worse. So at this point he says, well, fuck it. Uh, he was worried that the trail was going to be completely buried and obscured by the snowdrifts, so he set out into the strong headwind, which had to really suck. Kaysen traveled through the night with visibility so poor that sometimes he could not see the dogs that were harnessed right in front of him. Uh, and he was two miles past Solomon, which was where he was supposed to stop and hand off the serum when he realized it. And he was like, well, all right then. So he just kept on trucking. So at this point... The, the message to stop had been delivered to Point Safety and Solomon. So Kaysen doesn't know that the relay has been halted. So he's still going. So he's just going. Because, yep, because he didn't stop at Solomon where he would have been given that message. So the winds after Solomon were so severe that his sled actually flipped over. And he almost lost the cylinder containing the serum because it became buried in the snow. Oops. He, he suffered frostbite on his hands because he was feeling around with his bare hands in the snow trying to find it. Mm-hmm. However, he did find it, so everything's good there. Kaysen arrived at point safety ahead of schedule on February 2nd at 3 a.m. Ed Roan, however, believed that the relay was halted, so he was asleep, so he wasn't ready to go. So since the weather was starting to improve a little bit and the team was moving really well already, he says, you know what, I'll just keep going. So Kaysen goes the remaining 25 miles to Nome, and he arrives there at 5.30 a.m., and not a single ampule was broken, and the antitoxin is thawed and ready to go by noon. How many people were still sick by the time the toxin was being delivered? antitoxin was being delivered? You know, it didn't say, so I'm going to assume probably 28, because... 30 or less. I'm going to read to you the teams, and their relay leg, and how many miles they went. Okay. So we started with Wildville Shannon, 
He went from Nanana to, Tol- to Tolavana, and that mm-hmm. was 52 miles. Edgar Callens went from Tolavana to Manly Hot Springs, that was 31 miles. Dan Green went from Manly Hot Springs to Fish Lake, which was 28. Johnny Folger went from Fish Lake to Tanana, which was 26 miles. Sam Joseph went from Tanana to Callens. What? Nope, yep. And that was 34 miles. Titus Nikolai went from Callens to Nine Mile Cabin, 24. Dave Corning went from Nine Mile Cabin to Cochran's, which was 30 miles. Harry Pitka went from Cochran's to Ruby, which was 30. Bill McCarty went from Ruby to Whiskey Creek, 28. Edgar Nolner, Nolner went from Whiskey Creek to Galena, which was 24, where he handed it off to his brother George, uh, who went from Galena to Bishop Mountain, which was 18 miles, where he gave it to Charlie Evans, who was the one that ended up leading his sled, uh, Bishop Mountain to Nolato, which was 30 miles. Tommy Patsy to, was Nolato to Caltag, which was 36 uh, I forget what this guy's first name is, uh, but they just called him Jack Screw. Okay. Uh, he went from Caltag to Old Woman Shelter, and that was 40 miles. Victor Anagik went from Old Woman Shelter to Unaleklit, which was 34. Miles Gershurna went from Unaleklit to Chactalu, which was 40. <coughs> Henry Ivanoff went from Shaktaloo to where he handed off the serum to Sapala, which wasn't very far. I don't think he got very far out of Shaktaloo. So then uh, Lenhard Sapala went from Shaktaloo to Golovin, which was 91 miles. Damn. Charlie Olson... He went, to, he went 91 miles. To, he didn't, did he lose any of his dogs? Mm-mm. No. Did he get any frostbite or anything? Or like, did anyone lose anyone? Uh, I don't think so. Time? So like... Everyone, like, because everyone before him was yeah, got frostbite and stuff, and he was... I like, don't know about everyone, Well, I mean, but sorry, there were several, was several of, them. of them prior, mm-hmm. like, or they lost dogs and stuff, mm-hmm. and the weather was not nearly as cold, so that's crazy. I think at least five dogs died. Uh, Charlie Olson went from Golovin to Bluff, which was 25 miles, and then Gunnar Kaysen went from Bluff to Nome, which was 50, 53 miles. So it is worth noting... That Leonard Zapala drove 170 miles from Nome to Shaktaloo from the 27th to the 31st on his planned run from Nolato to meet the antitoxin. In addition to his return trip of 91 miles, which means that Zapala and Togo went a total of 261 miles. That is almost five times as much as any other team did for the run. Crazy. Also, in one day, he covered 84 miles. So That's a 10-hour haul, 10-hour plus haul. Yeah. Maybe he stayed at that 8 miles per hour the whole time. But Balto has a statue. It's fine. It, I'll talk it, about it, that later. I'm assuming, it is, was it probably because he was, like, the final run? I think that's part of it. Um, so, we've got that relay. Did you know there was a second relay? No. Because I sure didn't. This one is... Much less, there's much less drama. (laughs) I hope so, because... The the second relay... They they already had this prepped for next time. I mean, well, because, like, that, the 1.1 million units was still on its way. Mm -hmm. So, someone in Solomon Roadhouse was infected, and that raised fears that it would spread by the patrons that were going to the Roadhouse, and by that point, it just gets fucking everywhere. So, the 1.1 million units left Seattle on the 31st, and they were not due to arrive by dog sled until the 8th. 
of February. Welsh asked for half of the serum to be delivered by aircraft from Fairbanks, so they made a test flight, but since the cases in Nome were going down, permission was withheld, but they went ahead with preparations anyway, just in case. Uh, so the Navy, it says they moved a, a minesweeper north from Seattle, and then the Signal Corps were ordered to light fires in order to guide the planes. Uh, but by February 3rd, the original 300,000 units proved to be effective, and the epidemic was under control. Hmm. But then there was a sixth death, which was probably unrelated to diphtheria, but it was reported as a new outbreak. So this created a lot of pressure on the governor, who ended up authorizing the first half to be delivered by plane. So February 8th, the second shipment became, began its trip by dog sled while, this, while the plane failed to start, due to a broken radiator, which caused the engine to overheat. So the next day, the plane also fails to start. So they say, well, fuck this. They give up on the plane mission. Uh, then the second relay included a lot of the same drivers. Um, it faced harsh conditions just like the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that serum arrived February 15th. Sure. But I think at that point, a lot of the urgency was probably also gone because mm-hmm. they were starting to get things under control. Right. So the death toll in Nome is officially listed as five, six, or seven. Officially. Five, six, or seven. Right. But Welsh estimates it's probably closer to 100, stating, quote, The Eskimo camps outside the city, the natives have a habit of burying their children without reporting the death, end quote. Oh. Uh, 43 new cases were diagnosed in 1926, but this was easily managed because they had a fresh supply of serum. Mm. So, this is actually very sad. Something that they did after the serum run was that a lot of the drivers <clears throat> ended up, like, toured with their teams just around. They're like, yes, look at these heroes, yay. Mm-hmm. Um, Hasten was going around with this vaudeville tour promoter. And what? something weird happened where he ended up going back to Alaska to work, and so he left the team... So Balto and his whole sled team, he left them with the, the vaudeville tour promoter, who then took them to L.A. and sold them to a sideshow. No! In 1926. Dude, sold the sled dogs? Mm-hmm. And so they were horribly neglect- neglected and abused. Uh, but then a, they're a Cleveland, Ohio businessman, George Kimball, saw the an advertisement that was like, come see the heroic dogs. And so he went and he saw them and he took pity on them. And he paid a great deal of money to get them as well as their original sled, gangline, leads, and harnesses. And then they received a hero's welcome at their new home in the Cleveland Zoo. And that was 1926. So they didn't even go back to the... What the fuck? What's the point of putting them in a goddamn zoo? Well, I mean, what else were they going to do? I don't know. Go back to doing sled shit? Like, I mean, like, why would you... You have good working sled dogs that, I mean, they may have to be retrained again, possibly, but... I don't know. It just seems really shady to not only have them get sold off, but then, like... You're like, I mean, that takes hours of, like, training, probably. A lot of the times when working animals are too old to work, they just kill them. So, this seems better than that. That's true. But I don't know how, like... Like, do you know the course of time it was for um, between the selling and then the buying? A couple of months. 
Oh yeah, so that wasn't that long at all then. So yeah, they could have. I mean, they could have gone back to. I don't remember stuff. how old Balto was at the time. Ah. Um, but a couple years, several years later, I think it, this by now it's the 1930s. Balto is ailing, um, so he is euthanized March 14th. He's quite old. Um, the last remaining member of the team, Sai, paced and howled around for his team members because he's the only one, and he's. I mean. He's been with his team for so long, and now he's the only one left. And then he ended up dying the next year. Aww. Uh, Balto was stuffed and mounted and is displayed at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. And the enclosure at the zoo was dismantled after Sai's death, and a wolf pen was put in its place. And a monument was erected nearby that contained two bronze statues, one of Balto and one of Togo. Mm. So, finally. Uh, Togo was 12 years old at the time of the serum run, which by that age, most sled dogs have been retired. Yeah. But that was, Togo was Sapala's dog. Like, he trusted that dog so much. Because 12 is old. Yes. 12 is very fucking yes, old is. for a dog. And he fucking ran 270 <laughs> butt fucking miles, like... <laughs> But fucking I don't miles. know what that was. 270 but fucking <laughs> miles. Up. Title of the episode. Thanks. <laughs> Jeez. So, yeah. So, most dogs are already retired by then, and he's doing this. Uh, so, Balto led his team 53 miles, which, yes, they went through some very bad conditions. However, Togo led his team on his section mostly by scent, because the conditions were so bad that they couldn't see anything and it was so dark, mm-hmm. 91 miles. And that was just their specific leg. That doesn't count going there. Get off of scent. That's... Yes. By his nose. That's... That's crazy. Because Togo's total distance, he led his team 261 miles. In, like, five or six days. The nose knows. Right? Uh, Sapala was actually really upset that Togo's achievements were being attributed to Balto. Um, and there was a quote from him that was, it was really sad, because he was like, I almost can't bear it, the newspaper dog is getting all of the, the glory for his achievements or something. And it was really sad, because it's like, man, this guy really cares about his dog. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and I know you said Balto was technically Sapala's dog as well, like he had given... Yeah, I think he raised him. He ra- he had or raised bred him. him. Yeah. Um, so eventually, Togo was retired, and Sapala sold him to a kennel in Maine, or he sold most of the team to a kennel in Maine. Um, and this is why it is important that you know that Togo is not neutered, because most of the Huskies in the U.S. are actually descended from that specific team. What? Right? Yeah. That's really cool! (laughs) Also, speaking of neutering, what was the name you yelled at me when I was joking about not getting your pets neutered? Bob Barker? Yeah. You're kidding me, right? No, I'm not. Price is right? No. Every episode he's like, spay and neuter your pets. Nope. I keep... I... <laughs> what are you? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, you don't know what? Eternally Have you ignorant. never seen The Price is Right? Silence. <laughs> wow, we're getting some solid gulps in there. <laughs> you can 
hear that? Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> well, I'm thirsty. <laughs> but you don't know who Bob Barker is. That's true. Anyways. <laughs> Sorry. So Sapala sells Togo and most of the team to the kennel. Um, but Sapala still goes to visit Togo. Well, he's at the kennel. Until he is euthanized December 5th, 1929. So Sapala then has Togo preserved. His skin is... Er, so he... Togo's in two separate parts. Okay. His, his skin was stuffed and preserved, and that is currently... So, I mean, it still has the shape. It's still dog-shaped. Yeah, I know. Um, I, I wasn't thinking it was just, like, a bag of skin. It's not just, like, <laughs> like... a bearskin rug. Like... <laughs> Uh, so yeah, suppose like no. That part of Togo is currently on display at the Iditarod Trail Sled Dog Race Headquarters Museum in Wasilla. With Wasilla, I don't know in Alaska. Mm-hmm. While his skeletal remains are at the Peabody Museum of Natural History at Yale University, mm. and that is the serum run of 1925. God, Lord, Jamie. Fucking crazy, crazy. And I had no. God, it broke my heart to read that they got sold to a sideshow. That is just God, yeah, so sad. I can't like. Well, I think it was kind of dumb. I mean, like, I just don't understand the tours. Well, like, I think I can see it like maybe like for like building up morale. I'd be like, yeah, like look. Oh, it was money. I mean that that but, was the time yeah. of vaudeville. So, have you seen Gypsy? Well, never mind then. Well, that's one on that list. It's also... It, we did it for Music Week a couple of years ago. Right. And... Okay. <laughs> I don't know what you want me to say. Well, we're going to have to watch Gypsy, so God. there's that. Okay. And now I forgot what I was saying. How did that apply? Oh, vaudeville. Mm-hmm. Yeah, vaudeville. Yeah. Well, that's just a... It's awesome and a shame and sad and very interesting that most huskies in Mm -hmm. North America are... And something else that... So if you look at pictures of... You know, I'm going to show you a picture of Balto. Balto remains... All right, so here's a picture of Balto at the Cleveland Zoo. Oh. A little different than the movie. See, this is the thing, though. In this picture, Balto, he's got his you know, little white, white little socks on, uh-huh. and but he looks like he's like a chestnut brown color. Yeah. That happened just over time. He was black. He was black and white. So he was like, uh, what's that guy's name? He was like the antagonist of Balto. Steel? Yeah, there we go. Steel. That's a little bit of a, a more accurate coloration there. Where okay. he's he's black, not not brown, which is an interesting thing to have happened. And then uh the other dog. What the god Did you enter like a weird realm? No. I mean, yes, but... (laughs) 
And, like, Togo was a really beautiful dog. <laughs> I can see it. God, 12 years old. A 12-year-old mm -hmm. dog. Mm-hmm. And he was 12 in 1925. And he died in 29. Wait. He lived for... I can't do math. Uh, 16 years? 25 yeah. to 29? Yeah. That's a... He's, so he's at least a 16-year-old dog. That's a that good is, age for yeah. a dog. Like, because most dogs... I don't know what the average lifespan is, but I'm pretty sure it's anywhere between the realm of, like... 10 to like 13 typically that's mm -hmm. really good yeah like like that dog retired when most dogs actually retire mm -hmm. from life but I, you know, <laughs> ouch i mean like I'm saying, I'm saying that as like you know i've had several dogs in my life i'm like that's that's a good that's a good amount of time for a dog's life so yeah that's very cool. Mm-hmm. So that was that was a wild ride of emotions. Yeah. Also, fuck Balto for taking all the spotlight. I mean, I don't understand <laughs> how everyone latched onto Balto. Like I realize he was the last one to bring it in. Mm -hmm. But ninety-one miles, eighty-four miles in one day. Like Jesus Christ. Most important parts: the beginning and the end. Of anything. <laughs> so it's, even well, though all the wild... meats in the middle, but. Yeah. Wild Bill Shannon actually did tour with Blackie a little bit, but not very much. Yeah. And they didn't have the, like, fame that, um, like, Balto or Togo did. Okay. And, I mean, Togo t still toured and was famous, but Balto was still getting all of the notoriety and the accolades, and it was very weird. Like, I, I didn't well, because, understand. I mean, the way I see it is, be like, without Balto, I mean, even though, uh... The, right, the driver's name. Um, Kaysen. Kaysen? Gunner Kaysen. No, I thought the, the one that had... To Togo? To yeah, Togo. Uh, Lenhard Seppala. Yeah. Um, even though they had done all the work, it was probably the mindset, like, without Balto's team, in a sense. That I was mean, without that... any of the teams. Right, so... right. But, but Balto seems the one that delivered... They, they're the one that dropped off the serum for it to be used. So, in a sense, right, not in the, you know, like, they could have lost the container and all that stuff, but, you know, I mean, all the teams are equally important, but I'm like, the way how I could see it is the reason why Baltic got all the publicity and stuff is because that was the final drop-off. But also, Sapala was, the original plan, he was going to make that round trip by himself. That's insane. Which is He bananas. was going to do the whole goddamn yes. thing. He was going to go from Nalato to Gnome. So Gnome to Nalato, back to Gnome. Fuck. Mm-hmm. That. That's insane. I, I, I actually, I don't, I wonder if that would have happened. I don't think it probably would. I mean, I'm worried that dogs would have been over-exhausted or that something would have happened. See, I don't know. I think if anyone would have been able to do it, it would have been him. Because it would have been him, the, right? But that's the best still like, so, I mean, like, and he already did, like, an extreme amount, but that's mm -hmm. really extreme. Because if it was just him. Well, when he did arrive at, I can't remember where he, um, it started with a G. 
Golovin, when he did arrive, his team was exhausted, and he was also exhausted, because they had just gone for 274 miles. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, who knows if, if he actually would have been able to pull off the whole trip by himself. But I was I was very glad to hear but, that at yeah. least the Cleveland Zoo made there there's one for Balto and one for Togo. That's good. As there should be. Yes. And I really... It's Togo, right? Yes. Uh he was named after a Japanese general, and I think Balto is named after a Swedish one. Hmm. Interesting. Because I guess that was what Sepala did. He named them after generals or something. Although, I don't know if this one is named after anything in particular, but part of Sepala's team was Togo's half-brother, Fritz. Fritz. Mm-hmm. It's a good name. Yep. <laughs> cool. That's my story. Alright, you're sticking to it. I sure am. Okay. Shall we roll for next episode? Let's do it. I'd like to go. <sighs> Let's see what we got. I have a set of... These are geolasers. Ooh, laser. They're uh, a dice odyssey. Because they, they look like space. The Final Frontier? Yes, and they've got... Space Odyssey? The, the Star Trek font numbers on them, which mm. I quite like. Star Trek? Three. What did you mean, Starfinder? Star Trek. Okay. Okay, gotcha. Gotcha. Sorry, because they look exactly like the Starfinder numbers in the rule book. But maybe I'm missing something. They they could have modeled that after Star Trek. That's true. Just just a thought. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure they could have. (laughs) Sorry, but you rolled. I got a paranormal. Good. (laughs) Good for you. I got really excited for a minute because I was like, oh, it's true crime. It's not true crime. Alright, I'm gonna go and roll my I mean we're not surprised. The same good yep. old dice for forever and ever. True crime! Fuck you. Okay. Alright then. Cool. If you talk about what I was gonna talk about, I'm gonna kill you. I won't. No. I'm sure but, you won't. But me hundred percent honest, I was hoping for something different. Oh really? <laughs> What are you hoping for? Just anything other than chicken. Oh. Because I, I, I always like having like one, like like it always being uh-huh. different. Because I'm like, oh shit, now I gotta like, because like I try to make a catalog of all of them and mm-hmm. I don't want to like burn through a whole list. Yeah. And like I don't have like this buffer that <laughs> I have to try and refill it. But you know what? I'll figure it out. I mean, you made it through local technology, so. Or local science. Dude, that was, that was, I, I hit the jackpot with that one. That was. I, I felt really fucking lucky. <laughs> Not gonna lie. <laughs> it's like, oh shit. Like, uh, and if I have more time, anytime I get like those local ones, I may have to actually like start reaching out to like colleges to see like if like there's a college that had like a student invent something that actually became useful. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, that's the only thing I can think of if. <laughs> useful. I have to talk to people. Shit. Gross. Okay. Well, cool. So, true crime, paranormal. Yup. Yeah. Come back next week to find out what the fuck we're talking about. Mm. Bye. Bye.
If you've got something to say, find us on Anchor at anchor.fm slash WTFpod. Email us at wtf.podcast.mail at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WTFAYTA Podcast. That's WTFAYTA, our acronym, Podcast. Our music was by Decker Hinckley, and our artwork was by Kirby Morgan.